first ever episode of Reporter, interviews with local news, television, and newspaper journalists delving into their life on the job and their life outside of it as well. My name is Bo Berman. I am the host of the show and creator. I am a uh, local news journalist myself, a television news reporter in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for the ABC News affiliate WTAE-TV. And uh, this first episode features someone who is a friend of mine. I've got to know him through investigative reporting conferences over the years. His name is Noah Pransky, and uh, Noah is a phenomenal reporter who I'm very excited to kick off the show with. One of the reasons I wanted to start with Noah is just because he has such a different reporting style, the way he goes towards his investigative reporting and the way he uh, creatively presents stories and the way he just uh, is a storyteller in the truest sense of that word. So without further ado, here is interview number one, episode number one with Noah Pransky. So, uh, so Noah Pransky, Noah is a, you list yourself as a competitive reporter, competitive triathlete and competitive eater. What, what does Some that more mean? successfully than others. What do, what does that mean? <laughs> uh, I guess that means I live life to the extremes, right? Uh, I, I, you know, some people just go for a run. I need to compete. Some people um, eat every day. I, I I also eat every day, but uh, I have a talent for eating, so it's parlayed itself into some eating competitions that have gone uh, pretty well for me. And then, of course, you know, I, my job is to be a reporter and. Uh, everything I do is kind of competitive, so I take that into the workplace with me. But it's like you're not a jerk, though. You know, sometimes I you hear competitive and you think this person's going to be like this ultra jerk who's always trying to win everything. And I've actually found you to be the opposite, like a very like inviting and like chill kind of guy. Well, I guess it depends who you mask, right? Uh, there's plenty of politicians around the Tampa Bay area who would say I'm a jerk. Um, I've been called other names recently that some are appropriate for air, some are not. But when it comes to journalism, uh, I grew up I grew up delivering the Boston Globe and reading it as I would walk down the street. It probably took me twice as long because I would stop and read it. Uh, so I've always been a big believer in Big J. And I think a rising tide right, you know, raises all ships. And um, anytime I could help another organization, another journalist or anything like that, I would love to. Cool. So let me give everybody some background on Noah. I, I kind of forgot to do that here. Um, so he's a reporter in Tampa Bay for WTSP. Is that right, Noah? WTSP. Yeah, the CBS affiliate in Tampa Bay. The CBS affiliate in Tampa Bay. Uh, they have a. They call it Ten Investigates. Noah is uh, an investigative television reporter down there. Um, he has won four regional Edward R. Murrow awards. I'm going to brag for you a bit here, so you don't have to. Four regional Edward R. Murrow awards. Ten Emmy awards the George Polk and Columbia DuPont Awards, which are very big. And do you, do you have a Peabody, Noah? No, no, that's that's missing from the mantle. Oh, you slacker. Gee, no, Always that... working on the next one, I guess, though. <laughs> but that is like the big, that's one of the biggest uh, awards. It's pretty much the only one he doesn't have, but that is considered the, uh, if not the biggest, one of the biggest uh, in, in journalism. So I'm sure he'll get that one soon as well. Uh, he also he runs a blog called called uh, excuse that we're gonna have a little bit of dog noises here because I this is a little bit primitive my dogs are are here in my apartment. Um, anyway, it's part of life, right? They yes. they they join the career. They're along for the ride. So true. So he also runs a Noah's pretty versatile. He also runs a blog called Shadow of the Stadium, 
which is on the Forbes list, or at least at one point was on, is still on the Forbes list of the 50 must-follow sports business Twitter accounts. Yeah, yeah, been there the last couple of years, so that's wow. always nice. Very cool. Yeah, so it almost seems like you have like like you hate the Tampa Bay Rays stadium. Like, I mean that that's what like a like someone who's like a layman would not not hate it, but you're like obsessed with it. What, what's the deal? <laughs> um, you know, it's 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 not that I hate it. Actually, I I, I like going to games where they currently play. Uh, I think it'd be really cool if they got a new stadium, which is really kind of all the talk in the sports business world around Tampa Bay. But I really kind of uh, honestly serve as one of the only watchdogs when it comes to how tax dollars are going to be spent on public sports stadiums and things like that in this area. And we've seen all around the country, right? I mean, uh, pro sports are a cartel. They run a monopoly. They threaten to do harm to your city if you don't uh, fund them to their satisfaction. And uh, we see, you know, look at the Miami Marlins a couple of years ago. They, they they just hosed the public. And you can go all around the country, and almost every city's got some stadium horror story when it comes to funding, basically giving private teams money. They probably didn't have to out of fear of losing their teams. Um, but my job here in Tampa Bay, I, I like to think that I'm trying to provide proper context and perspective when the sports team says one thing, your media outlets tend to repeat it and play along, especially sports talk radio and the sports pages. Um, but the truth is often really kind of a different version you know, when the team says that they need money, I dedicate my blog and a lot of my time on air as well to asking the, the important watchdog questions. And, and I come from a sports background. I, you know, played my whole life. I worked for the Red Sox in the past. I've worked for some other pro teams. So I get both sides of it. I'm a big proponent of sport. But as a taxpayer watchdog is my full time job. I, I try to bring a lot of these issues to light that sports teams don't often need the money they tell you they need. So in brief, in very brief, but how did how do you become? I mean, you started at this at WTSP in two thousand nine, and how are you one of the only watchdogs for a pro sports team at this point? Per, I mean, personally, I started my career in sports, and I made the transition over to news and specifically investigative right around that uh, two thousand nine two thousand ten time. Um, so even when I was covering sports full time. I was always keeping an eye on the stadium issues. You know, I used to work down in Fort Myers and I saw how the Red Sox uh, convinced the taxpayers to build them in a brand new, uh, you know, spring training stadium when they already had a decent, nice little stadium. And so Lee County, Fort Myers, basically said, okay, we're going to build you a brand new stadium. And they paid for every penny of it. And the Red Sox at the time were, and they still are, one of the most profitable teams in in all of sports. They didn't need it, uh, but they threatened to leave. Fort Myers got scared. So I, I covered that issue previously, and I see it happen time and time again. Um, so I've always wanted to provide watchdog services and what I do and as a journalist. But you look around, and there's just not a lot of them. Sports are one of those, you know, holy grails or, you know, uh, the, 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 the thing that no one wants to challenge. People are scared. Uh, maybe it's the fear of losing access. Maybe it's not understanding sports business properly. But you really don't see many people challenging the claims and demands of professional sports teams. Got it. There's a uh, there's a quote out there, or maybe it's a motto that I that I like personally. It's it is uh, be too complex to categorize, and I feel like you sort of embody that in a way, whether <laughs> or at least I'm applying it to you in my mind. Um, you you were the mascot, right? For the speaking of your sports background, for the, for Boston University, where you went to college. 
Yep, and and then later on for the Boston Red Sox. You were the mascot for the Boston Red Sox. Wow. Wally the Green Monster. Were there multiple people who did it, or was it just you? <laughs> yeah, there were a couple of us that we split the, the season. It's it's a long season, and I was still in college at the time uh, for most of it. So it's a full-time job, and if you aren't doing it full-time, you needed to share. Because in addition to 81 home games plus potential playoffs, you know there's community appearances and weddings and all sorts of things you're asked to go to throughout the year. Um, you, your life is like consist consists of like all these good things that are just good for telling stories at parties. It seems like <laughs> uh, I'll write a book someday if I can remember it all, but I, I need to find time to do my job first. I mean, it's <laughs> watchdogging gonna... in Florida is one of those jobs. There's just never enough time. Yes. Every story, every story even nationally begins with a Florida man. Yeah. Florida man is famous. Um, he's done a lot of crazy things. And if it didn't happen in Florida, we have kind of a, a motto down here that everyone's got a relative. Everyone's got a Florida connection, right? Uh, from OJ to, you know, almost every national shooter in, in a mass terror incident, they all have family in Florida and we have to basically respond to everything. Yeah, it's a, it's a crazy, it's a big it's state. It's a crazy state. It's a crazy state, but a good state. Um, so so first you were, you, you cut your teeth as you were Rhett, the Boston Terrier for BU first. Four glorious years at BU, Boston University, doing that, yeah. And so, just in short, why did you, I mean, you know, a lot of people in, in college are worried about, you know, where they're going to score their next beer or studying would be a good thing to do, or getting an yeah, internship. Yeah, that's tons of studying. Why, so why why were you worried about becoming a dog, becoming a, dressing up as a dog your freshman year? Um, it was a chance, it was a chance kind of thing. I happened to stumble into, like, a meeting where they were doing recruiting, like, the first week of college. And uh, I said, all right, that sounds fun, and tried out, got the job. Again, I was one of several because there's so many appearances, and at the end of the day, you do have to be a student. So it was just a good time, and, and it became kind of my number one hobby through college. That's cool. Um, got to a lot of great games, uh, you know, saw the backside of the sports business, uh, from marketing to game ops to all sorts of things. So really, uh, it gave me a new appreciation for a lot of that, too. Got it. Got it. Um, and perhaps just for the life of a dog, just what it's like to go around and, you know, not. Uh... Yeah. Um, I sniff things still randomly, you know, throughout my day. <laughs> so how many competitive I'm dancing around here, but how many competitive eating competitions have you competed in? Um, something like 12 or 13 now. And I think I'd won every one until the most recent. I'm kind of like I kind of retired and came out of retirement lately. Um, it's really not good for the body. Um, the, you're basically training your stomach to not act as a stomach anymore. So I did that for a few years. It was fun. Uh, I've always been a big eater. I'm a big runner. So the two kind of go hand in hand, but I retired for a few years. I, I came back and did a, uh, a burrito eating contest recently where I, I finished second and maybe that's my sign that I'm over the hill <laughs> coming in second. Yeah. Um, I don't know about that, but and for people who don't know, who haven't seen Noah, you can you should definitely look up his work um, at WTSP.com or whatever other platforms on his Facebook page and on Twitter. But um, he, you know, he's not uh, he's more like the Kobayashi. You know, he's not he's not a heavy guy. You know, there's nothing wrong with being a heavy guy, but he he is he's, you're definitely an athlete. You uh, I think I think I've, you have like abs. You know, you're like a, you're like a guy who's in good shape. So it's it's amazing. Uh, you know, competitive eating does not always lead you to. Um, you wouldn't win a competitive weight competition if, if weight was the, you know, the measure. No, uh, but, but eating and, and running 
go hand in hand. So it makes sense. And, um, you know, there have been books and studies and all sorts of things done about competitive eating by now. And the skinny guys typically have an advantage because uh, their stomach actually can expand more. Less gets in the way of an expanding stomach. So I don't think we need to go into depth in that in this podcast. But it's uh, there's plenty you can read if you are interested about the science of competitive eating. <laughs> yeah, we'll leave that for my other podcast. Um, so and then next just, week on next, Botox. That's right. Um, and then you're also you mentioned you're a competitive triathlete. How many triathlons have you competed in? Uh, I, I do like a half dozen a year. And uh, just enough to keep me in shape, just enough to keep me occupied, my mind, from uh, getting bogged down in one particular story too long. It's a good distraction. Sure. And so why? So in 2009, you went to WTSP in Tampa. You had already worked in Georgia, northern Georgia, I think, right, covering sports. Yep. Yeah, I started had... the career in sports, and I went to Fort Myers, where I was covering sports for the majority of that career, too. Okay. Okay. Actually, and we we also later discovered after we met each other that you know uh, my cousin Dan. So shout out uh, Dan Haggerty. Uh, you guys work together down in Fort Myers. Yeah, I mean we work in a really small business. TV news, right? Uh, you tend to bounce around a lot, move around for different jobs. At least the first part of your career, and it's just such a small network. So everyone kind of knows everyone else. We found. Yes, exactly. Or is related to them. Um, and so, why did you? Why did you switch? You know, I've I've kind of been interested in this notion of uh, people that switch from sports to news, and I've found that they usually make really good reporters. Sometimes investigative reporters, actually. I mean, I look at you as an example, someone who you know was going to do sports and still does to some extent, but switch to news and investigative reporting. There's also a, a reporter out of uh, New Orleans who, who were buddies with uh, Lee Zurich, who did the same thing. And in some, to some degree, I did the same thing. I, I wanted to do sports and then am, am now just doing news. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think it makes for a – I mean, why did you do it? And, and do you think it makes for a good competitive edge in reporting? Well, personally, I mean, I saw the landscape shrinking for – uh, for sports, right? Every every kid grows up wanting to be the sports caster. I grew up in a time where I wanted to be on Sports Center, and for you know the first part of my career, that was the goal. But this this is a rough business, and not only is the path to Sports Center a really rough one, but the the local news um, atmosphere for for sports guys is really hard. It's shrinking, and it's kind of monotonous, right? I mean, like you go and you cover kind of the same story very frequently that's kind of what led me into covering a lot of sports business issues because i felt like i got to use my brain more i felt like i got to uh, challenge myself and tell some different stories sometimes so the more i got into sports business i realized that i kind of enjoyed the journalism more than i enjoyed the sports and that led me to uh decision to, to start anchoring news more and i was doing that in my old station and when i looked at the writing on the wall of local news stations shrinking their sports departments, but growing their news production uh, and their news outlet. It made sense, and I made the jump, and I haven't regretted it. Using my brain and challenging myself with, with some really in-depth investigations has been great. Got it, got it. So recently, I, you know, it was just a clip you put online of, of – of, this is a clip of Noah uh, trying to get a hold of this uh, – County councilman, is that right? Commissioner? Yeah, county commissioner for Hillsborough County. That's uh, that's you know Tampa. And, and this, this, let me sorry, I'll just I'll just guide people into it here. This is one of the most compelling things I've seen in a long time. Just the way you did it, the persistence, and uh, essentially what it is is they've been trying to get. I'll, I'll let you tell most of it, but in a nutshell, they're trying to get get in touch with this uh, 
local, you know, Tampa Bay area Hillsborough uh, commissioner who they've been trying to track down to ask some questions. They had filed right to no requests or Sunshine Law requests, and and I, I believe he had not released some of the documents. I'm I'm putting it mildly, but anyway, Noah basically tries to talk to him as he's leaving a meeting, and then and then walks with him for like I don't know ten city blocks, and they you guys kind of did like a like a throwback to the VH1 pop-up video with with little uh, pop-ups that kind of narrate what's going on as you're doing it. So can you just talk about that amazing piece of journalism for a little yeah, bit? Yeah, and I'll, right, so free plug. You'll have to post the link, but if people want to check it out, Bo will make sure that link is available. Yes, definitely. Because um, it's, it's really a visual thing, but the background, you, you got it right. We, you know, we have to ask tough questions as a job, right? And politicians' job as they answer to the public is to answer them. And they have to be transparent. And when it comes to tens and hundreds of millions of dollars, the public really has a right to know, especially in Florida, where we have really strong sunshine law uh, that, that requires business to be done in the public size. You've got to be able to answer to the taxpayer. So that sets up kind of like the series of stories we had done with this guy who didn't like transparency. He didn't like our questions and he didn't like uh, ultimately answering to the public in a lot of different ways from – He's the lead negotiator to on a race sports, uh, potentially new sports stadium to other transportation issues, to all these things that he's involved in. But he's got really close connections in the private industry and he doesn't like talking about the connections. So we're asking questions and he doesn't answer any of our responses via email or phone, whereas every other commissioner in the county is. So we're trying to get answers. And what do I do at that point? You know, my training as an investigative reporter through um, Investigative Reporter and Editors, which is a national group, national nonprofit dedicated to really training journalists. And that's how I met you, Bo. Uh, But like, you know, one of the things they teach you is if the guy won't answer, go get his public record, uh, public schedule. So for months and months, I've been requesting his public schedule just to keep track of where he is and his, you know, what he's doing, his going ons. And um, ultimately, when we got to the point where he wasn't answering our questions about a specific story and we needed answers, frankly, because some important taxpayer issues were on the line, we went to the public schedule and said, all right, when are we going to find this guy? Well, there's a new sheriff, literally a new sheriff in town. Uh, So when they were naming (laughs) the new sheriff, we showed up to the photo op, he's swearing in. And it's the kind of thing where politicians like being seen. Um, and he, you know, sheriff is one of the biggest politicians in the county and the county commissioner didn't want to miss that opportunity to kind of kiss the ring of the new, the new sheriff. So he was there and, uh, because it was a public space, all we had to do was show up with a microphone. Well, he knew at some point, because I told him, I was very transparent. I said, if you don't agree to an interview, we're going to just come and find you. And we'd done that before with him. So he knew what was coming. Um, so we show up to the county courthouse where the swearing in was taking place and the commissioner walks out and gives this canned line that he had obviously rehearsed and thought about. He said, due to your irresponsible and misleading reporting, I've chosen not to talk to you. And he just kept on walking. (laughs) Well, our job is to keep asking the questions and to keep, uh, keep holding them accountable. So we followed him. Well, within about 10 steps, he's at the elevator of the courthouse and he tells us we can't, we're not allowed on except it's a public courthouse. So of course we get on with him and it really started what became a six minute um, kind of uncomfortable interview where he did not want to take place. And he just kept repeating himself over and over again um, until he kind of got flustered at the end and started, 
changing his answer a little bit. But it, it produced really one of those entertaining moments where we're trying to hold someone accountable, but he's so stuck to this line in his response that he's not <laughs> really doing anything except making himself look like, uh, you know, he's he's sick of transparency and doesn't want to deal with it. So when we came time to do our story, we actually just kind of aired the interview as it was. We didn't want to be accused of taking things out of context or anything like that. So we aired it as it was. And to give people proper context of what was going on, we gave it the uh, VH1 pop-up video treatment and provided little pop-ups as, as this six-minute walking interview, uncomfortable walking interview took place. Whose idea so, was that? Whose idea was the um, pop-ups? It was mine. I, I was trying to think of a way to run it in its entirety but provide context as well. So it just kind of came to me and uh, I scripted it and it made for some entertaining, shareable social media content as well. And, and what was the turnaround time on that from the time you, you conducted the interview and, and you know did an editor just know how to do those pop-ups like that? I So I worked with um, – we have a graphic artist at the station who does a lot of great marketing and promotional work. And I went to her and I said, here's what I want to do. Can you, can you make this happen? And she said, great, sounds fun. So I, I scripted it out for her the way I kind of would do a normal script, but instead of editing video, she just uh, edited these graphics onto it. And again, I hope we can make this link available because it's kind of a visual thing. It's hard to describe. But, oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, We're going to have uh, – there's going to be show notes for each uh, episode of the podcast. So, yeah, it'll absolutely, it'll absolutely be in the show notes for this episode. There you go. But um, so it was, so was she, a, was she like the person who does your promotions, like coming up at five kind of person? Or was she more of the – just all the graphics for all the news stories? No. she um, She's not really involved in news very frequently. Um, but I've started to kind of like, you know, I, I, am trying to take out of the box approaches to traditional stories because I mean, look, we, we know that a lot of people get their, their news from social media now. And the way people consume news on social media is just so differently than the way they traditionally consume it on air. So sometimes we have the same stuff, but a lot of the times I'm, instead of thinking about a broadcast story, when I go out and report it, I'm thinking first about the social media presentation. How is this going to convey on Facebook or other so social media that is going to be in a shareable, clickable, watchable way? Um, there's nothing wrong in my mind with infotainment, and that's kind of a dirty word in a lot of investigative circles and TV circles. But the fact is we want to inform people. We want to report. We want to do great watchdog stuff, but it doesn't matter if no one's watching it. So there's a happy medium, and sometimes I'm not always there. Sometimes I swing and I miss. But I'm trying to find more of that happy medium out of the box from traditional news where people will find it appealing both on air and online. Got it. Well, this was a this was like a must watch uh, thing. And the last question. So we'll definitely have the link posted and everyone needs to check it out. It's I, I promise you're not going to regret it. Um, and one last question about it that I have is um, so you said you pretty much aired it in that format. I mean, did, the, did WTSP give you, what, six minutes? To, you ran that on air during a regular newscast? So one of the things we're doing, and Tegna, our parent company, has been really supportive of, is trying to just break the mold and trying things even if they may not ultimately work. So we ran actually – so the six-minute version went online. Um, it actually went online a few days before anything ever hit, social, uh, hit broadcast. Um, so we released it online, let it percolate for a few days. It did really well. Um, and then we cut different versions for different newscasts depending on 
time. Uh, we aired a short version in the morning show. We aired a, a long version, which was, I think, about four minutes in our early evening shows and then a longer version in the evening, the late evening show. So it's just kind of recognizing we have different audiences at different times of day. But when you have something really strong, we'll air it multiple times because we have different people watching at different times of the day, too. Got it. Got it. And the first version on the web, was that was that with the pop-ups? Um, yeah. Everything everything that we aired was with the pop-ups. Okay. Um, I also then did um, some additional stuff on broadcast uh, – I'm sorry, on, on digital, um, social media. I, I did what I kind of call in um, adver- advocates – I always screw this up because I change the name like every week. But basically – advocating and investigating you combine them you get like a advocatorial i guess or advocation oh my and i'm it's not a name that's going to catch on but to me it means that we're advocating for transparency advocating for truth um things like that it's okay to advocate for we're we kind of grow up in a world of, of journalism where you're not supposed to advocate you tell both sides of the story but one of my favorite quotes is journalism isn't telling both sides of the story it's it's truth finding and, you know, if you've got one side of the story that is that is lying to you or one side of the story that is wrong, it's OK to sometimes advocate for the taxpayer, for transparency, for right over wrong. Now, those can get a little muddy sometimes. Well, when it's not muddy, I have no problem standing up and advocating. And that's one of the things I did on this story, too. Um, I, I put like an editorial together for Facebook, which, again, told the story of what we were doing, why we were doing it, and why it's important. But you also mix in some humor, kind of like a John Oliver segment, and it gets people to pay attention more. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, and so on the Facebook comments for this video, I noticed that um, a lot of people absolutely loved it. A lot of people clearly understood what you were trying to do. You're, you were, I mean, it's pretty obvious. You're, you're being a watchdog journalist. You're advocating for the public, for taxpayers, and questioning why this public official – is essentially not doing his job or being evasive, um, you know, re- regarding public business that he should not be doing. However, there, we're, we're in this environment now. You know, this is post November 2016, and, and there's this this that we're in the fake news world now, right? Where people, you know, will will yell at reporters, "Oh, you're fake news." It's just become a very catchy slogan for people, an easy way to uh, try to discredit you in, in, in with two words. So how do you – I noticed that you actually were responding to quite a bit of the comments on Facebook. So I guess this is a two-part question. Number one, um, how, do you, how do you operate in the, in the new fake news world sort of in terms of being criticized? And, and two, why, you know, why do you choose to respond to Facebook comments? Yeah, I mean even though the term fake news really kind of took off you know, last year on the campaign trail and um, obviously – a, a huge amount of President Trump supporters will echo whatever he says when it comes to fake news. But fake news isn't news you dislike. Fake news is news that was actually contrived out of nowhere. And, and that's not what your local journalist is about. Your local journalist is so important. So when people throw out the term fake news or they try to discredit journalism in general on a story like this, I respond to them directly. And as a human, I try to say, you know, what – what concerns you about what we did? We're advocating for transparency. We're advocating on behalf of the taxpayer. What is fake about that? And some people are just so um, some so programmed to hate 
journalism and journalists right now. Uh, I think, frankly, what they hate are talking heads on national media, but they're lumping that in with journalists. I mean, they couldn't be further apart from what your local journalists are doing at TV stations and newspapers. But they're so programmed to hate that. I try to respond to them once and I try to have a human conversation on Facebook or whatever social media it may be. And sometimes it's about half the time people respond. They say, oh, I don't mean you. I mean CNN or I mean Fox News or whatever it may be. Um, But the other half of the time – People dig their heels in and they just are not willing to hear you. So all I can do is I advocate for those people too. We'll advocate for transparency. We'll continue to advocate for taxpayers um, and be watchdogs for people. But it is frustrating and it's disheartening to see just this automatic distrust of the media that's been created, again, long before the Trump administration. I mean, Karl Rove was doing this years ago with the phrase, you know, elite liberal media which really didn't mean anything except it was his attempt to undermine uh, really any journalist that would question. And it allows those who are, should be holding accountable to create their own narrative. It's not just a Republican thing, but really Karl Rove and Donald Trump are the two guys who come to mind trying to undermine what the media does. Got it. Um, do you have any advice for – I mean you've been very successful. You're, you've, you're decorated with a lot of awards and, and you know, have, have, are really doing some innovative stuff down there in Tampa. Do you have any advice for, for a young reporter who's just getting out of college? I mean, it, maybe the first question is, is it even worth it? Is it, is it still worth – is it still an industry – You know, I, I get that question sometimes. Is it worth getting into? I mean this isn't the business you're going to get into to get rich. This isn't the business to get into if you want to be famous. Uh, this is a business to get into if you love um, treating people fairly and equally and exposing wrongdoing and holding people accountable. Um, in TV, we tend to be the face for it, but frankly, I do a number of stories that I that I don't that I'm not the face for. Whether it's just for our website to hold people accountable or for help other reporters out, I, I love just the journalism and the old school mentality of holding people accountable, exposing the truth, and acting as the fourth estate in our government. We're important check and balance. At the same time, I'm having a lot of fun doing things differently. Out of the box, you know, this is TV from for me. This is online, which is another place people are consuming news in an atypical fashion. So anything I can do to break the mold and kind of advance us, uh, like I said, our parent company Tegna has been really embraced. You know, they've embraced this attitude, and it's been awesome to try and have fun with it. Yeah, it's it's been fun to watch too. Um, you know, some of your stuff. Um... So, yeah, let's talk about that just a little bit briefly here. So, I mean, it seems like there's – I've been noticing this from afar, just sort of like the – are you, like, dumping Cocoa Puffs into a canister or <laughs> – To what? To, to get creative ideas? No, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, the, no, I'm, the noise in the background, it's like this, like, ju- like, mar- like you're collecting oh. your marbles or something. Um, no, no so it's a, that sounds delicious. I'm, I'm hungry. Yeah. No, but no, it's – it's normal house noises. You're, you're competitively eating while we speak. Um, <laughs> so no, I've, I've noticed. I've, I've noticed over the years, like you doing a lot of innovative things, and I finally saw you. I, I can't remember what I saw, but it was somewhere where like you actually. It was either you or the station actually wrote down the word innovation. It was like yes, like it was almost like you're finally admitting it or something. Not that you needed to, but it was like finally in writing. And I mean, is that really the what's the word like the ethos there right now? Or like I mean, how do you have such cooperation from your boss because i know as a reporter sometimes i'll try to do something outside the box and they kind of uh 
you know, put the kibosh on it. They're like, no, you know, I don't know if that's going to work or, you know, there's not enough time or, you know, there's, there's always an excuse. Yeah, I think I think Tegna is one of the big national media companies that has come to the conclusion what we're doing isn't working long term. Right. I mean, TV stations are still profitable, but every year the numbers of people watching local broadcast news goes down. And we're, we're, we're clinging to this tiny little scrap of the market share on that. And it's still profitable largely because of so much political money in the, in the funnel here. But, but at the end of the day, we need to find a way to, to make ourselves relevant long term. And in some ways, that means doing the same thing. In other ways, it means inventing and innovating and finding things that we can continue to grow on. And our company has been really awesome about fostering new ideas, even if they don't work. And I've been very fortunate at the local level here in Tampa Bay. My bosses have been very supportive of trying things that are out of the box. And in many ways, it's the attitude, what do we have to lose? You know, if we offend a few people, fine. But if we come up with a new way to do investigations or television that no one else is doing or that will become the new model, then we want to be on the forefront of this. And, you know, it comes that's my message to to young reporters, too, is don't stop innovating. Don't stop being creative. We need to find ways to get people to watch us because standing in front of a house fire isn't working anymore. I don't think people want that. They aren't. They have so many options. They're choosing other things over that. What would you do if you were a? I mean, obviously you're you're far past this in your career. You're a you're a solidly entrenched, you know, innovative investigative okay. journalist doing your investa advocatorial, whatever you called it. But what would you do if, if like right now you were uh, you were assigned to be a general assignment reporter for six months? What, what sort of ideas would you take to that? Um, you know, I, I'm a big believer in in finding a beat and working a beat. And I think newsrooms, uh, especially newspapers, work great when everyone's assigned to a, a specific beat or beats because it allows you to get to know the people better. And that's the way you can do the best reporting. If you want to hold people accountable and you want to expose things that other people don't want you to know about. You have to know the people involved. So when you pick a beat, when I started here, I had a couple of beats. It was like the Tampa Airport, uh, University of South Florida, the big university here, and uh, the Rays' attempt for a new stadium back in 2009. Uh-huh. Well, those things are all still big news stories, and I know the people involved so much better now. So now when you're in a market for one play, you know, one amount of time and you've been working a beat, people will pick up the phone and call you because they know you are – the sports business reporter, or you are the airport reporter. And um, getting to know the people, doing one thing consistently pays big dividends in the world of Watchdog. So I would also advocate, I guess, um, you know, you got to know the rules before you can break them. We're trying to break all the rules in TV now, but it's still based on the journalism basics. And I would I, I would recommend that you got to, like, know the basics of journalism. You have to know how to write a story before you can write a creative one that's breaking the mold. You have to know how to get on TV and tell the who, what, where, when, why succinctly before you can try to do it in a way that's not been done before. So learn the rules. Then you can start to learn and experiment on how to break them. Okay. That makes sense. Um, so let's talk about time management a little bit. Cause I know that in like the last month, I feel like I've seen you everywhere from, you know, doing maybe community service yesterday. I think I'm stalking you through Facebook or, um, you know, in Washington, D.C. earlier this week, possibly up in like Detroit or something. You've been everywhere. So I always wonder how you juggle everything. Let me put it to you this way. What is on, on a typical day when you're in Tampa? Uh, tell me about your your more your morning routine. Like what time do you wake up? What do you do in the morning? 
<laughs> I, I don't think there is a typical day. And that's one of, one of the things I love about investigative reporting. I and mean, there's just not a typical day. But like if I'm going to generalize, I get up 5, 530. Every day? Uh, about? I, on I, average? Yeah, on a weekday for sure. I what time get do you the go morning to bed? paper. What time do you go to bed on average? Uh, like 10.30. Okay. Maybe. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's always different. But I, if I get seven hours of sleep, I'm thrilled. Uh, maybe closer to six, six and a half on some days. But so I get up at 5, 5.30. I get the morning paper on my doorstep as, you know, I did when I was a kid. I still do that. I read the paper as I am kind of like getting myself woken up. And at 6, 6.30, I work out, get that in to start my day. Okay. I get wait, to the wait, office. Hold on. Why, why do you still read a, not everyone does this anymore. Why do you still read a, a paper copy of the paper? Why not just go to, you know, tampabay.com or whatever the website is? Um, I find it the most efficient way for me. And I still know my way around the paper. There's still, it's still really easy to find all your Metro local stories in one section of the paper. Uh, frankly, I don't read the sports section every day as I used to. And if I need, if I'm tight on time, I can just skip that whole section. But it's kind of hard to navigate around a newspaper's website and get everything that matters to you in a short amount of time. I find um, you'll see the biggest headlines for sure. And on days where I'm really slammed or days I'm out of town, that's what I do. But if I have the paper waiting on my doorstep, I'm thrilled. It's still a great medium for me to digest a lot of what's going on in the world. Um, sometimes I'll consume a second newspaper online if I if I have the time. But normal day. You know, I spend half an hour getting like up and ready and eating something before I go work out with my morning paper. And then I get up to the office at 9 a.m. or whatever. Um, I'm often in the building all day and I don't leave. Some days I'm out shooting all day. But often a lot of what I do day to day is research. Okay. And you try to you try to line up, you know, the big stories. Um, so I spend a lot of time and effort on the big story. Um, again, I'm lucky that I don't have to be on every single day. So I find myself on air about three times a week with different things. But the, I would say the, the majority of my time is put into the stories that you see once a week. Right. So you'll see a big investigation for me once a week. And that's where the majority of my time goes. Um, it can be very overwhelming, but you have to say no to a lot of things. And sadly, you know, there's a lot of people who come to our station with problems. Right. Most of them these days email, but you still get a lot of phone calls and that can be very time consuming because you want to help everybody. So I've been around long enough to know the resources, you know, your typical consumer resources. And I try to help everybody out. I try to at least point them in the right direction. If not, you know, make a phone call for somebody to try and fix the situation. Um, but those often like don't become stories for us just because I don't have the time to turn everything. Right. And right. my unit is it's basically me and a consumer reporter in our investigative unit. We just don't have the time to do a story on every person's problem every day. Right. Uh, but we try to still help as many as we can. So I spend some time doing that. And then sometimes we will be able to, you know, fix somebody's problem on air, hold somebody accountable and give people information to, you know, hopefully help themselves out if they ever find themselves in that situation. Let me jump backwards to the newspaper reading one more time. Um, are you drinking coffee or something while, while you read the paper? Do you have <laughs> anything, water, a beverage? Yeah, yeah. I, I, my cup of tea every morning. What kind of tea? Uh, I read my paper. What's that? What kind of tea do you drink? Green tea. Green tea every morning. Okay. On an, uh, just on an empty stomach? Green tea, empty stomach. Uh, depending on what I'm doing to work out, I might have a small bite to eat. I mean, you're really, you're really getting into the, 
the yeah, weeds I'm, I'm here on like here. Noah's morning. I, I just I just want to know your your routine, and then and then what is your workout typically? Is it going for a run? Is it weights? Is it strength? You know, what is it? Uh, every given morning is different, but you know, run, bike, swim on any given day, and sometimes to the gym if it's uh, inclement weather. Oh, okay, so you'll you're mostly just doing these things not at the gym, just outside. Um, a little bit of both, you know, having access to a gym is good. Uh, you know, boot camp here and there, some weightlifting, mix it all in and just got to keep the metabolism going so I can keep eating as much as I do. Right. And then what time, so do you go to, so you come home, you, you take a shower, you go, you get dressed, you go to work. Uh, what time do you have to be there? What time do you get there? Um, I get there eight thirty, nine o'clock most days. Some days it's 6 a.m. to be live in the morning show. Some days it's a little later, but that's why I say there's no real typical day in my world, but it's, it's a lot of fun, um, when you're not sleep deprived because it's, it's different every day. Do you, do you sleep with your cell phone in your bedroom? I do. Um, recently I made a very big decision to put it on do not disturb overnight. Mm. So if someone needs to reach me, they still can, but I no longer let the text messages or occasional phone call wake me up. Um, I've just, you have to put it away sometimes. And, and I find myself at 5 a.m. often, you know, if if it's busy in my world at work, 5 a.m., I'm working on stories. I'm, I'm writing stuff for the web. I could be working on my blog. I could be doing research for a story. And then sometimes at night, I'm doing that at 8, 9, 10 o'clock as well. And, you know, as an investigative reporter, I'm going to work way more hours than a general assignment reporter. But it's so much more fulfilling to me. Every person is different, but I find it just so much more fulfilling and honestly flexible it's with some of the hours, so I don't mind. Do you, when you wake up, do you, you, your phone's on do not disturb, but when you do wake up and you're up, do you immediately check your emails and, and get into the, you know, get into that stuff before you read your paper and before you drink your tea, or, or do, you, do you wait on that? No, that's first thing. First thing I do when I wake up is grab my phone and see if I missed anything in the world. Uh, you see news alerts, you see emails, um, you know, the important stuff. How much time are you spending on that before you actually stand up and, and grab the paper and all that? Five minutes. Okay. I'm a morning I'm a morning person, so I, I don't need to like lay in bed and hit snooze a lot. I spend five minutes looking at my phone, making sure nothing happened, uh, and then I go and start my day, and I'm kind of glued to my phone all day. Okay. What is Pretty your, badly. For, what, is your, uh, what is your favorite uh, social media platform these days and, and why? Favorite social media platform? <clears throat> um, I mean, for for, I mean, Facebook is where our viewers are, right? So I spend the most time on Facebook. I don't spend nearly as much on Twitter as I used to, but I still use it as my prime newsfeed. Twitter is where I, you know the journalists I follow and the major newsmakers are, and that's kind of what I use it for. I don't tweet as much as I used to because I don't think as many of our viewers are there, frankly. Uh, but they're on Facebook, so. I'm posting on Facebook three, four times a day. I am on Instagram a bit for, frankly, more mindless stuff. Um, Do you use use Instagram for work? Sometimes it's not a priority. Uh, Again, I don't think people are on my Instagram page to see the latest Tampa Bay investigations. I think it's more personality driven. And frankly, when I go to Instagram, it's kind of mindless to see what my friends are doing. Yeah. So I don't put a lot of I don't invest a lot of time in Instagram. Um, I, I have Snapchat simply for really mindless stuff. 
But Facebook is, for work purposes, really where the bulk of my attention goes with Twitter kind of, you know, filling in the blanks when something big happens. Where do you, uh, where do you see us as an industry like, you know, I don't know, two or three years from now from a social media perspective? Do you think, you know, it's, it's going to be with Instagram stories or Snapchat or, you know, Facebook still? Or do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, if you look five years ago, um, we're kind of in the same place as we are now. Snapchat's newer. Um, but really Instagram was there five years ago. Twitter was a bigger player five years ago, but it's still a big player day to day, just not, not as much as social media, but as a newsfeed and as, as where newsmakers are going. And Facebook obviously is the dominant 400 pound gorilla in the room. And I think, um, I think two or three years from now, we'll probably be looking at the exact same thing. Five, ten years from now, it's gonna it, landscape's gonna change. I just don't know how. I, I still think everyone will be on Facebook to a degree, and whether a new social media website comes along or not, I, I think people are gonna continue to rely on broadcast news a little less each year and turn to those same outlets online more. Because we're still, in many ways, the trusted local news source. You know, I'll tell you when Hurricane Irma came through Florida last month, a uh, month or two ago, a couple now. Um, the news, the numbers of people watching local news were astronomical. They're still turning to us in breaking news in important situations. We're still trusted on that. So, you know, we're gonna still be your dominant news outlets in town, whether it's the paper or broadcast. I just don't know how people are going to consume it. So I'm trying to evolve with it. And you, when you see me in our station doing more out-of-the-box things, it's really to try and just stay relevant and on the cutting edge as social media evolves. Yeah. I think it's been interesting because Facebook seem, is such a giant, and it, it kind of went through this like sort of lull where for a while it was considered not cool. Uh, you know, where people were kind of diving off of it. And I've actually noticed some of those same people getting back into it, mostly because they're either having children or, um, you know, posting those baby pictures or whatever, but, or just because all of their friends are still on it, even though uh, at one point they just thought, oh, I'm done with this, or it's not very cool. But at the end of the day, there's just so much built in, like, almost equity of just information on there of, of, you know, the photographs that people have already posted and this and that. But the other thing about it, too, is that, do you remember Meerkat, the app Meerkat? Yes. So, so for those who don't know, Meerkat was like sort of a really a predecessor to Periscope, and really what now is the most which is a predecessor to Facebook Live to Facebook Live exactly. And uh, Periscope, I believe, was created by Twitter. Meerkat, Meerkat was created by I think an Israeli guy at South by Southwest uh, festival where he presented it, and I, I was loving Meerkat when it first came out. It was it was incredible. But it's, it was basically just Facebook Live. So, I mean, Facebook has really – I mean, is it safe to say it's wiped out Periscope? Oh, yeah. I mean, Periscope and I, – I don't see Periscope or Meerkat, you know, ever ever holding a marketplace again. Um, I, I think Facebook's got a number of things going for it. Like you said, it's the equity that people have already put in. You can't, like, you can't leave Facebook. You've got 10 to 15 years of memories on there in some cases. So you can't leave it. I mean, it's sitting there. There's no way to like just download it to another social media site. So as people, you know, in in my generation, in our 30s, they grow, they're going to be on Facebook probably forever. 
right. until this landscape changes really drastically. Right. But Facebook has such a grip on it because they control the funnel too uh, of news. People are going to Facebook for news. They they're getting it from their friends and relatives who are sharing news relevant to their their literal social networks, right? I mean, like my social network is my friends and my family. Well, they're sharing articles that are relevant to us. So that's where I'm going for a lot of my news these days. Yeah. I'm clicking on those articles. But at any point, Facebook could turn that faucet off. And then what do the local news companies do? And there's talk now that they may do that. You know, I mean, Facebook is in so much control of so much of that. They know so much about you. And they, they, they are the key to local media reaching people. Facebook isn't going away. And that's why their, their stock is so valuable. Are they a media company? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, they're 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 not doing a lot of original reporting, really. But I wouldn't be surprised if one day they did. Why not? It's, it's they like control it. They're like they're just in a right now. They're an amazing aggregator and in, in an amazing funnel, like an irreplaceable funnel. Yeah, I don't. I don't see. I, I do see them one day getting into news content producing, not just aggregating. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, you know, Amazon now, you know, Jeff Bezos, uh, of course, owns the Washington Post. So, I mean, you have two of the, the the major, you know, American tech stocks or whatever you want to call them with Facebook and Amazon, essentially with a pretty big, not stranglehold, but, you know, a pretty big, uh, they have their toes in, in the water now when it comes to media. Yeah, because I, I think, you know, I, I think Bezos is a believer in journalism. I don't think Bezos is interested in controlling the media um, in ways that some other moguls might be. But I, I don't know the guy. I, I can only guesstimate. Uh, and, and I think his interest in the in the Washington Post, a lot of it is in seeing what the future will hold in terms of innovation. Uh, the, the marriage between journalism and media with along with tech. Um, and there's some pitfalls that come with that, right? I mean, I don't think Bezos is telling reporters how to report, but the more we intertwine journalism with any other industry, you will run into some pitfalls and journalism, you know, it it needs to stand on its own. It needs to be independent right now. It it seems that the Washington post is doing a good job with that. Who knows what the future will hold? Uh, I'm hopeful that they will continue to do some great work there. And other media outlets will follow. I mean, the war we see right now between the Washington Post and New York Times is incredible for our industry. People are consuming the news. They are uncovering things that people didn't want uncovered. They're holding people accountable. And again, rising tide raises all ships. Um, look at it, Just look how good those newspapers are doing right now compared to five years ago. And people are saying newspapers were done. They would never again be subscribed to. Yeah, no, for sure. Right. Um, what do you think real quick? What do you, while we're on the topic of Amazon, what do you think about this, uh, HQ two situation? Of course, for those who don't know, I mean, you probably heard about it by now, but you know, Amazon uh, has their headquarters out in, uh, what Seattle and in that area. And they have this big, it's almost like Willy Wonka and the chocolate fact. I mean, there's like this, like a golden ticket kind of thing where you can, uh, apply to get their second headquarters, which they say is going to be just as big as the first one. And, have, uh, you know, what, uh, 50,000 jobs, I think they said, and, you know, 5 billion in, in you know, uh, money coming into an area. But it almost reminds me of, if, if anyone's skeptical of it, it might be, it might be you, actually. <laughs> is, is Tampa competing for the Amazon second headquarters? Uh, they're trying. I don't think they're a legitimate 
competitor, yeah. frankly, because if you're an if you're a company like Amazon and you have your choice between 50 American cities, are you going to come to one with major uh, transportation issues, some uh, quality of life issues, some education issues with the schools? The answer is no. I, I believe the answer is no. Um, and in fact, some of the I've, I've done some reporting on this. I've done some uh, on my blog as well. Shadow of the stadium. And um, because it does relate a lot to sports incentives. Right. So you're giving money to a company that clearly doesn't need money. Right. But at the same time, they're asking for it. And there's like dozens of cities tripping over themselves to offer billion dollar packages to Amazon. Right. Like one of the only companies in the country that really couldn't even count its billion dollars. They have so much money. Um, so why are we giving public tax dollars to something like this? Uh, there's been great reporting in Seattle where Amazon's main headquarters is about how they did bring these jobs and they did bring billions of dollars in economic development with it. But there's a lot of downsides too. the stresses they put on a city um, are huge. And even though they're creating all these jobs and raising tax revenues and things like that, it can be decades before that actually materializes in a government's pocket. In the meantime, you're putting huge amounts of stress on your roads, on your transportation, on your schools, property values, all sorts of things. And what Amazon did is they were like, you know, cities across the country have a month and a half to give us your best offer. Well, none of the cities across the country took the time to really vet it. They just kind of like blindly had to throw an offer together at Amazon in a, in a silent auction, in a blind auction. Um, and it was only one city, really, San Antonio, Texas, that, that said, we're not going to play this game. And if you have an extra moment, I would, I would recommend Googling San Antonio Amazon HQ2 because their letter to Amazon was really impressive for a city to step up. They said, we believe you've already chosen your city where you're going to go. And this is nothing more than basically an attempt to extort the taxpayers of that city to get free money. Mm. We think you've already made the decision. We don't think it's in our best interest. Uh, and we wish you luck in your search. Mm. <laughs> and if more cities at least gave thought to that stuff when it comes to luring new businesses, luring sports teams, building new sports stadiums, we'd be in much better. And a lot of the stuff I do in sports business is just trying to ask those questions. What's the return on investment? What are the possible downsides? Before it becomes too late, because quite frankly, cities just trip over themselves because politicians want their name on that stadium. They want their name on that Amazon HQ2. And, you know, they they make mistakes that later generations of taxpayers and politicians have to pay for. Got it. Yeah, it's uh, it's been interesting. I heard a little bit about that San Antonio situation. I didn't realize they had outright put out a letter like that. I'll definitely have to check that out. It's and, a really uh, interesting read. It's a short letter, but it's a really great read. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, I want to be, you know, mindful of your time here. We're coming up on uh, an hour for this. Do you have time for a couple rapid fire questions? Yeah, I'll keep it short. Go ahead. Okay. It's kind of fast questions and, and hopefully relatively fast responses. All right. So if I said the word successful uh, to you, who is the first journalist who comes to mind? Uh, Edward R. Morrow. And why? Um, he, trusted. He was trusted. And that is a mark of success in journalism. Okay. Um, how about someone just just out of curiosity? How about somebody more contemporary who would come to mind? Successful journalist. What comes to mind? Successful journalist. Um, pick anyone from sixty minutes. Uh, I mean, that's just the Oprah. That is the number one. Oprah. Was it Oprah? 
Um, Winfrey. She is a successful media individual, but in this, in, I'm not ready to call her a successful journalist yet. Uh, she just hasn't really cut her chops really in the industry, but she has potential because she has great respect, uh, and I think she knows what she's doing. Got it. I, I was just kind of trolling you because she just uh, started on 60 Minutes, I believe, recently. Right, yeah. No, I mean, and I, I don't think she's bad. I think she's a very smart woman. Uh, look, I could say the same about Howard Stern. I think Howard Stern is a brilliant guy who is an incredibly successful media member, but he's not a journalist. So there's a difference between journalism and media. Right. All right. Um, what, is, what, what would you say is one thing that you believe to be true – or one thing you believe in that almost everybody else thinks is crazy. Is there anything <laughs> one, like that? Like a conspiracy theory? I mean, it could be anything. I mean, I've, I've heard people, uh, um, you know, like some people say their answer is ghosts. Like they believe in ghosts, but almost everybody else thinks that's nonsense. Or I don't, I don't believe in fate, and I believe that most people do. Okay. I, so, I believe that we make decisions every day uh, that change our change our future and change our fate, but I don't think it's predetermined. Hmm. Okay. Um, so, so, how, so the, uh, like when the Red Sox won, won the world series in what, 2004, they came back three games to one. You, you don't think there was any fate involved in that? You would say no fate there. I don't think that was fate. I think that was, uh, some great baseball <laughs> and, and some good mascot work to get the fans. Uh, yeah, that was after my time, but I like to—I laid the groundwork for some great mascotting in the 2004-2007 seasons. Yeah. All right. Um, what is uh, what what one book have you given the most often as a gift? If you've—I don't know if you've even ever given a book as a gift, but I guess what I'm trying to get at is like, what is your favorite book? And if that's too difficult to narrow down, what are like two or three of your all-time favorite books? Um, recently I've been giving and I have to keep it clean, but, uh, there's a book called, uh, the subtle art of not giving an F right. by, uh, Mark, Mark Manson. Manson. It's a great yeah. recent book. I've been given that as a gift. Uh, prior to that, I love the book ball Four, uh, baseball, real life, uh, story from the 1960s and seventies. It's a fascinating baseball book. Hmm. You've got to read it if you're a sports fan. Uh, so you, you received the subtle art of not giving an F. Uh, someone gave that to you or you give, you gave that to someone? Uh, both. It was given to me as a gift. And since then, I've gifted it uh, four or five times. Wow. Wow. Okay, cool. In the last year. Okay. Um, I'm still Mark waiting. Manson. I'm still waiting on my copy. Um, <laughs> all right. Um, and then what is your – I mean, you're pretty busy. Do you – I don't even know if you watch television, but – do you do you have a like a favorite uh, any cable news pr news program first is what I want to ask like you know maybe like uh, Meet the Press something like that and then secondarily do you have like a you know one of these like Netflix HBO a favorite show? Um, Sixty Minutes is my go-to broadcast show. Although I do watch the Sunday morning shows when I can to try and take it in. CBS Sunday Morning is a fantastic program uh, and typically pretty apolitical. So it's nice to see some great national news without having to get into politics on a Sunday morning. Uh, and then Netflix, uh, there's a couple. I mean, House of Cards I love. Um, I got into Ozark this past season yes. with Jason Bateman. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. That's great, yeah. Uh, I guess House of Cards is the one. I just saw Manhunt. It was an eight-part documentary on the Unabomber search. That was great. Uh, so that's – I'm not a huge Netflix guy. But I've been trying to find good stuff. I mean, there's so many recommendations from people now. So that's those have been the ones. Okay. 
And so we talk about TV shows. I mean, you you don't watch a ton of TV. You know, you're always you're always busy. You might be working at 5 a.m. You might be working at 9 p.m. Do you ever like like chill? Do you ever just like have a, have a beer or like you know? I mean, do you, do you do like what do you do for fun? I mean, like people people are always telling me I need to slow down more. I don't spend much time on my couch. Uh, TV shows. I've started watching a little bit of Impractical Jokers, which I think is stupidly hilarious oh my goodness yes uh, my, my girlfriend thinks that is ridiculous that i have that dvr but it's just so dumb but so funny love it and then i love um there's a show on fx adam ruins everything uh-huh. which is kind of some inspiration for me when i go into to my stories i mean really it's just a different way of storytelling uh again uh john oliver i watch the daily show sometimes because they're telling you news and half the time you don't even realize you're consuming news. It's it's they're educational. They're telling you important things, but they're doing it in an out of the box way. So Adam ruins everything is kind of a similar version of that with a little more um, a little more tilt toward history and away from politics. Got it. Um, do you see yourself in in TV news uh, for the rest of your life? I hope so. I, I guess it depends what the industry does, right? You say TV news. I mean, how long before TV and social media and digital are all kind of the same? Uh, I, I don't think of myself as just a TV journalist. I, I think of myself as a journalist who is on TV and is on digital. So it's tough to predict where the market's going. But 10 years ago, we thought that TV would TV and newspapers would be a thing of the past. And there's still the two number one ways that like a lot of people get local news. Um, Facebook obviously has changed that dynamic a bit. And I don't know what it's going to look like, but I'd love to keep doing what I'm doing. What is the one tool that every reporter should have with them every day in their in their bag? I mean, a cell phone these days you can do everything with, right? Uh, I think you need to have a camera with you. So as long as you have your cell phone and you know how to get to that video camera really quickly, I think that's the one tool. You know, I've got, I mean, like on my front screen, I've got two different ways to get to my video really quickly in case something happens that's that's an important thing in a lot of journalism when you see news happen you got to be able to roll quickly if there's a politician that i'm chasing who happens to walk by me i need to be able to get to that camera within milliseconds got it that's a good idea i got to do that i got mine's i've i've literally had instances where i'm fumbling to get to the camera just because it's two screens away then i've and i've missed things so i got to get that on the front screen yeah you know the iphone you can just swipe up and get to the camera right but it's like you need to be able to do it in your sleep yeah so what however you use your camera most frequently you need to make it as easy as possible because if you're doing it when you're with a group of friends and you want to take a picture It'll be second nature when you need it in an emergency to get that camera out. Right. And actually, I think this will be my last question, Noah. Um, something I forgot to ask you earlier. I so, better make it a good answer. <laughs> um, it's nothing huge, but um, I've faced this question of w- when you're you're going to get, you'll say, and, you know, we call them often an unscheduled interview in 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 the broadcast industry, where you know you've you've tried to email and call and write a letter to a politician or you know, a public figure who has to answer some questions and they've been avoiding them. Just like the story we talked about, your, your great pop-up video, uh, you know, confrontation they're sometimes called. But when, it, when, do you, when is it appropriate to, to just take no for an answer? You know, sometimes you will ask a question like, you know, you know what, what, why have you been avoiding us? Or, you know, what have you done with that public money? And they say, I have no comment. Okay, well, of course you're going to ask them again or maybe phrase it a few different ways. But, you know, when do you when is when is there a line that it's like, OK, it's become obvious that this person is just not going to answer and, and, you know, you have to leave them alone. 
Yeah, I don't think there's a single line. I think it's it depends on the person in the situation. Um, that's I don't like doing that. I try to do that as little as possible, frankly. Um, but you do it when you have to when you can't take no for an answer. When it's something of great taxpayer interest or um, or the person is especially if the person is a public figure like a politician whose job it is to answer to the public and represent the public. If you're getting the feeling or you have information that suggests they're not putting the public first and they're not doing their job with transparency as as they're supposed to, that's when you can't take no for an answer. We we do take no for an answer sometimes, uh, but when we tell them we have to talk to you on the record. Uh, I'm, I will ask you these questions. It's your choice whether to answer them or not, but I will ask you these questions. They know. Um, and, and I think politicians in town as a journalist, when they see me doing that, they don't want to be the next one to, to look foolish by not answering questions. So I think when you develop a reputation of holding people accountable and asking tough questions, you're, you're going to have more success going down the road too. Yeah. Noah Pransky, he takes no for an answer sometimes. That's your, <laughs> that's, uh, your motto. It's probably not something I'm putting on my business card, but <laughs> but the truth is, I do sometimes take no for an answer. Occasionally, okay, got it. All right, well, this was awesome. Um, we're gonna have I'm gonna have uh, what I'm gonna call you know show notes uh, available where I'll kind of uh, footnote this uh, this episode and every episode with uh, some of the books we've mentioned, links to those books, links to some of the videos we've discussed, and uh, some of the newspaper articles in terms of the. Uh, San Antonio letter. We'll get a link to that available for everybody. And um, excited to have you on the show for sure. And hey, where can people find you online? You know, what's the best way for uh, fellow reporters who might be listening to this to you know connect with you or to uh, to find some of your work to reach out to you? Yeah, my handle is Noah Pransky. Uh, that's on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, across the board. Um, and my blog is Shadow of a Stadium. Yeah, you can just Google that. It 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 started as kind of a play on the uh, on my phrase, the intersection of where sports and business intersect. Uh, but but really, it's kind of taken off. Um, it it is a Florida based blog on sports business, specifically in Tampa Bay. But I cover all sorts of issues on that. So um, if you if you're a journalist anywhere who does sports business or has an interest in stadium happenings, things like that. There are so many resources on there. I've had this blog for almost nine years now, and I, I'm pretty sure I've covered just about every stadium in the country at some point. Wow. So I'm, I'm always anxious to connect with other, other journalists, too, who want to do some watchdogging. Okay, great. And uh, people, uh, you know, if, if, if journalists, you know, want to get just more of, you know, an idea, idea of your story, your Facebook page, I, I would guess is a good place as well. Yeah, Facebook. And then our station website is WTSP.com. Uh, TSP is in Tampa, St. Pete. And uh, we'd love to... Love to, you know, get you guys help share the message. And if you're down in Florida, give us a holler. All right, nice. Man, I never knew that. The TSP is for Tampa, St. Petersburg. Got it. Yeah, you know, there, you'll find a lot of call stations, uh, call letters across the country for stations actually means something. Uh, but they just you just got to kind of do a little digging to figure it out. Got it. All right, man. Thank you very much for uh, your time. This is very fun. And I'm uh, glad you could uh, glad you could join for the uh, the inaugural episode. Hey, I like setting the bar low. So from here, Bo, great expectations. Things can only go up. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot. I will thanks, uh, I will catch you later. Take care. Bye. All right. Well, that'll do it for the interview with Noah Pransky. Certainly hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you have any questions for Noah, feel free to reach out to him on his various social media platforms. 
If you want to re-listen to the episode or share it, go to boberman.com slash episode one. That is the number one, not O-N-E spelled out. And um, if you uh, want to take a look at any of the articles or stories that we mentioned in the podcast, you can find the, all of those in the show notes, which again are posted at boberman.com slash episode one. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.